0: Okay, today is April the 19th, 2011, and I'll remind you that uh, we have the Communion Sunday, uh, May the 1st. Easter is this next weekend, and we have the Men's Barbecue Bible Doctrine and Bullets on (laughs) on May the 7th. And I found out, uh, I, I know I'm going to have to pass this along more than once, that if you bring a son, that he is half price um, of what the normal rate would be. I had some people ask me that question. And none of them are here right now, so I'll have to make that announcement again. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have to always be mindful that this life is not about us. It's all about you and what you can do for us and through us. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the details of life, to worry about the things that are really insignificant, to major on the minors. There's so much contention and strife and disharmony all around us. It's so pleasant, wonderful, wonderful. To see that we worship a God that changes not. We can always depend upon your faithfulness and your love. Your protection and your provision. You lift our spirit. Take us out of the mire. Put us on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your word is so important. And yet it's so easy to neglect. We pray that you will help us to keep our priorities straight, our focus clear, that we'll recognize our purpose and our goal and depend upon you to achieve it. We pray that you will help us to focus this evening, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I have a a short article here that someone handed me, and I'm not going to read it, just a few blurbs. What it does is show how far gone the mindset of the average person is these days with regards to God and His Word and spiritual matters. It's, this was something written to Dear Abby, and the title is Open Minds Are Useful When Discussing God With Kids. And this is the whole gist of the article is what people would have to say about what do you tell your kids when they get to that point when they ask, is there a God or who is God? I think it's interesting that it's taken for granted that that's going to happen. Every child gets to a point to where he asks, Mommy, is God real? Who is he? What is God all about? And unfortunately, you get some of the sampling of the attitudes that are prevalent in our society, no doubt, worldwide. This one woman is responding to an agnostic dad who was trying to address the issue of who God is to his children. And this person responding to this says, When we were teens, they, meaning this person's parents, allowed us to sample other religious traditions to determine what would suit us best. And I'm thinking, religious traditions, you see, that's what a lot of people think religion is all about. And unfortunately, they're correct. For the most part, religion is nothing but tradition. It's a lot of rituals, most of which are empty, that mean nothing. And what people have done in churches since the beginning of these churches, they continue to do. So when this woman was a teen, her parents allowed her to sample the other religious traditions to determine what would suit us best. In other words, this is the child's decision. Get out there and get a real well-rounded influence in essentially legalism or paganism. She said, I became an, an agnostic. <laughs> well, surprise, surprise. Here you have parents turning their children over to various religions to see what suits them best. It's not very shocking that this person turned out to be an agnostic. I mean, however many places she went... No doubt these people believe this, these people over here believe this, these believe this, This believe that, and so forth. I got to that point at one time. Maybe you had too. I was searching for truth, and I got very frustrated because no one seemed to believe the same thing. And I would go to commentaries. I would go to articles. I would go to different, and just listen to different people, most of which knew more about the Bible than I did, and nobody agreed on anything. And I thought, I essentially was about ready to throw my hands up, and I thought, well, how can I come to a resolution in my mind what is true when all these people who know a lot more about the Bible than I do, they can't resolve to my satisfaction what the truth is. They know a lot more than I do, and they don't agree, so how can I know what the truth is? And I resorted to something that I should have resorted to a lot sooner prayer i went to the lord and i said i want to know the truth and i'm confused and frustrated i don't know where to go next i want to know what you want of us who you are what we're supposed to do there's so many issues and i'm ready to throw in the town and i asked for direction and for god to lead me to truth do you suppose he did See, I could have saved myself a lot of wear and tear if I would have done that first. And I found myself, I wound up at a place called, of all places, Baraka Church. Now, we don't suffer from the stigma of a name like that. When you say Country Bible Church, people ask you, what church you go to? You say, Country Bible Church. They don't squint their faces up like they just swallowed a lemon and say, what's that, Baraka Church? They think it's some kind of cult or something. Anyway, my point is that if you want to know the truth and you go to God and ask Him, He will direct you to it. And when you find the truth, if you are truly seeking the truth, it will satisfy you like nothing else can. And when you are being taught the truth and you are learning the truth, you are satisfied. It fills your soul. And the Lord was faithful in doing that. And, of course, I was already away from the nest at this point. And uh, if I <coughs> uh, there are so many people that don't have the benefit of any religious training at all, if I could call it that. And sometimes that's better than having a well-rounded sampling of the different religious traditions. That is a train wreck for someone who doesn't know anything about God. So she says, I became an agnostic and like like the dad in South Carolina, this is the one she was responding to, was unsure what to tell my son. My husband and I do not belong to any organized religion and didn't take him to church as a youngster. That's their son. Instead, we introduce stories from the Bible at bedtime. Isn't that nice? That's what the Bible is really good for, is bedtime stories. You can put by the way, I'm not reading now, I'm commenting. You can put the Bible right along there with Mother Goose and read bedtime stories to your children. Do you see why I don't call biblical historical accounts stories? So we introduced stories from the Bible at bedtime and allowed him to attend his friends' churches when he asked to. More important, he showed uh, we showed him that all people are to be valued and that differences are to be respected. Our son is now in his late 20s. He's a gentle, caring person with an interest in people from other cultures, religions, and circumstances. Whether he is agnostic, religious, or an atheist is a personal matter to him. That just is appalling as far as I'm concerned. Then there's another reader that says this, addressing the same issue about what are you going to tell your children when they start asking about God. This one says, We discussed in advance what our answer should be when the God question came up. Our response was, quote, Some people believe there is a God and others do not. You will get a sound religious education, and when the time comes, you will decide for yourself. Well, that is true to a degree, but what I'm wondering is, where did they send this child to get a sound religious education? Was it in the Catholic Church? Because they have a lot of schools where they... I hear that they're great teachers academically and that you can learn probably better than in public schools in the Catholic Church, but they also throw in the mix of Catholicism. So I would not call that a sound religious Training And then the last one here, this is another family, another couple, saying my advice to dad, this is the dad that's the agnostic that was questioning what to do. My advice to dad is to read some of the excellent books that are available about discussing God and religion with children. Now I'm thinking, are there really that many excellent books available about Discussing God and religion with children? i got an idea. How about using the Bible? Huh? That's a novel idea, isn't it? What you want to bet? That book wasn't on the list. He should also look into the Unitarian Universalist Church, which does not push any one creed, but recognizes people... But, excuse me, encourages people to find their own belief in a supportive environment. That's what's passing for. And everybody, the, the unfortunate thing is most people would read this and say, hmm, that, that makes sense to me. What's wrong with that? The person that gave me this handed it to me. He says, I thought I got this. I thought you might want to read it. And I said, will it get my blood up? And he said, yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is just a common sampling of one issue of how far gone our society, people in general have degraded. It, it's And it continues. I, I keep thinking we've hit bottom. I don't know where the bottom is. It's, Far below where I thought it was and continues to sink. If you'll open your Bibles to Second Thessalonians chapter two. Thessalonians chapter two. 2 Second Thessalonians, 2. 2 Thessalonians is not a book for the weak of heart or weak in doctrine or eschatology. This is not a book that you would want to point somebody towards that has no initiation in the Word of God. I would suggest the Gospel of John would be a good book to start them with. This one is not. <clears throat> and we are covering verse 13 and 14 of Second Thessalonians chapter 2. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now, there are so many words in that that can be communicated in more than one way that it's nothing but a bunch of jumbled up words for those that don't understand, that don't have a background. For instance... When it says, God has chosen you from the beginning. From the beginning of what? Is that talking about the beginning in eternity past? Is it talking about the beginning of the Thessalonians with regards to their spiritual life once they were born again? Is he saying in Macedonia from the very beginning when he was evangelizing? Is that what it means? Actually, in in a sense, it could mean either way. I think I I lean more heavily towards uh, from the beginning, meaning in eternity past. But one could make an argument that this is talking about more of the uh, experiential sanctification type of mode and say it could be the beginning of the ministry in, in Macedonia. So, chosen you from the beginning for salvation. What kind of salvation? Is this talking about eternal salvation? Is it talking about a temporal type of deliverance? Is it talking about both? Through sanctification. What is sanctification? What kind of sanctification is this referring to? Positional or experiential? Or both? By the Spirit. Now, this has a capital S, which we take as being the Holy Spirit. But in the Greek, you don't have a capital S. In fact, you don't have an S at all. It's pneuma in the Greek, and it's not capitalized. So many times, you, you what you have to do is take the context. Is it talking about the human spirit? Is it talking about the Holy Spirit? Are you beginning to see how you can't speed-read through this type of text and get anything from it? By the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now, we haven't even finished that verse, so I'm going to put on the board our where we ended. And we're picking up verse 13 where it says, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. That's where we are here. Through sanctification by the Spirit. And we, had, we launched already into somewhat of a dissertation on the difference between positional or what you could say lawful sanctification, which is our position. It's based on our position in Christ. This has to do with everything that God has done for us. It is permanent. It doesn't have anything to do with... With our temporal time on earth, this temporary time that we have from the time that we were born again to the time of our physical death. This is something that has been established, it is permanent, it's a done deal. That's the positional sense, but we also have an experiential sanctification. You see, most of the time when we are talking about sanctification, at least in, the, in theological discussions, Justification is usually used for the point of salvation because you were justified, aorist tense, at a point of time and it was permanent. That justification, it's irrevocable, it's based on God's faithfulness and His promises to us. So when you hear someone talk about justification, usually you understand that this is talking about the permanent positional sanctification that God accomplished through Christ on the cross, and now is credited to us. It would be, it would include eternal life and God's own righteousness and all the ministries of the Holy Spirit and so forth. And it, sanctification normally in these same discussions refer to the time of spiritual growth. It's, the, it's it's talking about the time from spiritual birth to the time of physical death. During that time, sanctification means being set apart for God for blessing. And generally, that's what it refers to. But in one sense, though, it is used sometimes as positional or lawful regarding to our permanent sanctification being set apart for God, by God, which has a permanency to it. And God does it. It doesn't have anything to do with us. It doesn't have anything to do with our works, our commitment, our time, and how we spend it. This is just a brief look at what we had on the board as far as a screen, the difference between the positional or lawful sanctification and experiential sanctification. I'm not going to go over these again. They're in the notes. If you want to get them off the website or if you want to get copies of them, whatever you want, we have them there uh, for you. We've gone over these already. So He chose us from the beginning. We already looked at that. Where I want to pick up tonight is on this right here. This is where we start our message tonight. Is <clears throat> He chose us from the beginning. This is in verse 37. From the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. And here we're on the last phrase. And faith in truth. The Holy Spirit certainly enables us to be experientially sanctified. It would not happen apart from Him, but it would never happen if we don't have faith in truth. It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to be experientially sanctified, to be specially set apart in time for special blessings. couldn't happen without the Holy Spirit's work, but it also could never happen if we do not have faith in the truth. Those are two necessary items for us to be experientially sanctified. Truth, which we so often call Bible doctrine, that is heard but not believed, will not deliver you from the power and temptation of the world, nor will it protect you from the lies and deception of Satan. So you can hear all the... Bible teaching, even if it's accurate and true, powerfully delivered, it won't mean a thing if it's not mixed with your faith. It has to be believed. And sometimes I wonder how many times believers are sitting out in the pews, in our case, chairs and they're nodding yes, 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 okay, yes, yes, yes. but do ever do they do they ever get away and really, meditate upon what's what they're what they're nodding to. Because often their lives don't don't jive with their nodding. Yes, I believe this. Having an accepting attitude towards something and actually believing it to where now it can be applied, I think, are two different things. I think to really believe something means that you would be able to explain to someone else why you believe it. It's not, whatever they say, I go along with it. I don't think that's the kind of belief that is here. And there are a lot of people that go to churches that have all the denominations and all the different beliefs they have. And their attitude is, well, I'm a Lutheran, so whatever the Lutheran teaches, I'm, I'll go along with it. That. That's fine with me. I don't think that's believing. Well, I'm the church of Christ. Whatever the church of Christ goes along with, whatever they teach, I'm fine with that. What kind of difference is that going to make in your life? This believing means that you have heard it, you have understood it, and you have accepted it. You can explain to someone why you believe what you believe, and it is going to have an influence in your life. That's the believing here. That's the faith that's mixed with the truth. Now, I hope this doesn't sound like a rebuke. I'm not trying to rebuke anyone. I'm trying to make a distinction that a lot of people will say, I go along with that. Going along with something, I don't think, is believing. Not in this sense. It is accepting something that's going to have an impact in your life. If someone, let me give you an example. If someone came up to you and, and they said, Do you believe in God? This is what we were talking about before, about do you believe in God? And you said, yes, absolutely. Well, do you think you're going to heaven? Absolutely. Well, why? Well, because I'm a Baptist, and that's what the Baptists believe, and so I believe it. How solid is that? Huh? I mean, just saying, well, can you give me more than that? No, I'm a Baptist. That's what they believe, and I'm not picking on Baptists. It's great that they believe that. That's not believing it. We have to, in fact, we are commanded to give a reason to anyone at any time for the hope that is within us. That's the command. And if you don't really believe something, how can you do that? Faith and truth. So if you have one of these, well I'll go along with the crowd. This is what my parents were, this is what my uncle is, my aunt is. We're all Mennonites. Pick your brand, whatever you want to say. If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. That is not having faith mixed with truth here. This is that's would be labeled going along with the crowd. That would be taking the Line of least resistance. The importance of believing the truth can hardly be overstated. People make decisions based on what they believe, and those decisions can be devastating if they are based on lies. Would you agree to that? And that's not just in the spiritual realm, that's in anything. What you believe is going to determine so much in your life. It is probably safe to say that there is more lies, deceit, and deception than ever before. We have access to more information than anyone who has ever come before us, and most of it is tainted to some degree with that which is untrue. You've heard me talk about what we have access to today. Some of us are cursed with having computers. Some of us are even further curse by getting on the Internet. And what that means is you don't only have to worry about your own problems in your own household or in your city or in your state or in your nation. The whole world is right there. And the difficulty, there's nothing wrong in information in itself. The difficulty is being able to discern and determine What is true and what is not? I think people are a little more aware that you can't believe everything just because it's in print. Nor can you believe everything just because it's on the news. Nor can you believe everything just because it's on the Internet. It doesn't matter where you get it. Our whole society, our whole culture worldwide is tainted. And there lies the challenge for us. In our large prayer to the Father on our behalf, He said in John 17:17, 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Set them apart in the truth. Thy word is truth. Our only safeguard against being devastated by believing so many lies is to weigh everything against the word of truth we can depend on the Word of God for everything in life. Now, the question is, do you believe that? A lot of people would accede to that. Yes, I believe it, brother. Preach on! And then they go down and pay a psychologist $200 an hour to take care of their problems. 2 Peter 1.3 Seeing that His divine power has granted to us Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Second Peter one three. Do you believe that? Faith in truth is not only how we are eternally saved, it's also how one is saved from being destroyed by the hidden landmines of lies and deception that are scattered everywhere we go. Now, we're pretty alert when we go in the marketplace, especially the ladies. They can go into a, a store, and they might be looking for linens or sheets or blankets or cloth, whatever it may be. And regardless of what the sign says or what the salesperson says, they know what they're looking at. They have discernment. It's harder to con them. Send a guy after sheets, he might come back with burlap bags. You have no idea what you might come back with. But the women are very discerning because there's lies out there, aren't there? I'll tell you something this just happens to be a good illustration I've been looking for a car online I found one that looked really good and I'm following the advice if it looks too good it's probably a scam and I went through I went through all the parameters the, the preliminary things to buy this car online but before I Followed through anymore, I started doing some research. Uh, this, these people said, well, uh, we're going to have the paperwork done by eBay, and eBay will take care of all of the uh, escrow and all this. And so I said, oh, okay, well, I'll look into that. I went on eBay's website, and they said, be very careful about scams where people will have, it's a buyer purchase protection plan. And they claim that they go through eBay in order to do it. I was looking at the car on Craigslist, another website. And they say if it's not, if it's not, the car isn't listed on eBay, that it won't be under the protection plan. I said, uh huh, scamola. Now, it's very easy. The lure is there. This car was half price. And it looked very legitimate. But what did you have to do? Or what did I have to do? Look a little deeper. That's what we all have to do. Because the deception is everywhere. And it's disguised very, very adaptable. I mean, it's uh, unbelievable how true something can seem, especially in the spirit. Who is the great deceiver? Satan himself. He is an expert. He is so superior to us in his intellect and his abilities. That it can look so good. And he can say, sometimes you read something and it's right on. He's got a lot of good doctrine in it, and then all of a sudden you come to a little blurb in there. A little bit of leaven, a little bit of false. What does that do? Leaven's the whole lump, doesn't it? So we have to be very careful about the lies and deceptions that are scattered everywhere we go. And people have bought them. How many people do you know? And I don't want to see a show of hands or any discussion on this, but how many people do you know, especially outside of your church family here, that are squared away and can sniff out deception with regards especially in the spiritual realm? How many people are able to do that? Wouldn't you agree? Very few. We're going to get into verse 14 in a moment, but we're talking about sanctification. And in the latest issue of The and Call, uh, Reynolds Showers, Dr. Reynolds Showers wrote a short article. I'm not going to read it to you, just a blurb here. Behold, the bridegroom comes. Remember I told you I was going to give you this last time to link it to sanctification? I think you might find this interesting. He says, those who live in the modern Western world do not catch the full significance of Jesus' promises in John 14:1 through 3. You remember that John 14? This is where Christ say, says, if I go away, and he was going away, uh, then I will come again uh, and so that where I am you will be, and I go away to my Father's house. There's many mansions. That's what John, those verses are about. He says that they don't get the full significance of Jesus' promise that he would go to his father's house to prepare a place for them, then come back and receive them to himself. This is due to the fact that in his promise, Jesus was drawing an analogy from Jewish marriage customs in biblical times. By Jesus' time, it was usual for our marriage covenant to be established as a result of the prospective bridegroom taking the initiative. He would travel from his father's house to the home of the prospective bride. There he would negotiate with the father of the young woman to determine the price that he must pay to purchase his bride. Once the bridegroom paid the purchase price, the marriage and betrothal covenant was thereby established and the young man and woman were regarded to be husband and wife. You see, once the payment had been made, for the bride, then they were already considered, even though they had not joined together yet, still as husband and wife. Are you already making parallels here? The bridegroom being Jesus, paid the price on the cross. We are, we are positionally right now the bride of Christ, but only positionally because the wedding has not taken place yet. Once the bridegroom paid the purchase price, the marriage and the betrothal covenant was thereby established, and young man and woman were regarded as husband and wife. Listen to this. From that moment on the uh, <coughs> excuse me, from that moment on the bride was declared to be consecrated or sanctified. Set apart ex- exclusively for her bridegroom. As a symbol of the covenant, the relationship they had "...that had been established the groom and the bride would drink from a cup of wine over which the betrothal benediction had been pronounced." Then he says, "...the groom would leave the home of the bride and return to his father's house." You get that. You got that connection. Christ left planet earth and went back to his father's house. "...there he would remain separate from his bride for her for a period of 12 months. This period of separation afforded the bride time to gather her trousseau and to prepare for married life. The groom occupied himself with the preparation of living accommodations in his father's house to which he could bring his bride. That is what Christ is doing. At the end of the period of separation, the groom would come to take his bride to live with him. The taking of the bride usually took place at night. The groom, best man, and other male escorts would leave the groom's father's house and conduct a... Torchlit procession to the house of the bride. Although the bride was expecting her groom to come for her, she did not know the exact time exact time of his coming. As a result, the groom's arrival would be preceded by a shout. The shout would be for would forewarn the bride to be prepared for the coming of the groom. Now I'm going to skip about another whole most of this page, and then it says Analogous with the Jewish bride being declared to be sanctified or set apart exclusively for her groom once the marriage covenant was established, the church has been declared to be sanctified or set apart exclusively for Christ. Here are some verses. Ephesians five twenty five through twenty seven, Corinthians one two, First Corinthians six eleven, Hebrews ten, 10. and Hebrews thirteen twelve. In the same manner as the Jewish groom came to take his bride to live with him at the end of the period of separation, so Christ will come to take his church to live with him at the end of his of His period of separation from the church. Analogous with the Jewish bride not knowing the exact time of the groom's coming for her, the church does not know the exact time of Christ's coming for her. In the same way the Jewish groom's arrival was Preceded by a shout, so Christ's arrival to take the church will be preceded by a shout. Similar to the Jewish bride's return with the groom to his father's house after her departure from her home, the church will remain, excuse me, will return with Christ to his father's house in heaven after she is snatched from the earth to meet the Lord in the air. You see the connection here with sanctification? This is why we are all, it gives a beautiful analogy of the bride, I mean the marriage of the ancient uh, Jews as to what is taking place and why we are sanctified in Christ. I think I'll go while, while I still have that fresh on our minds here. We'll look at maybe one or two more screens with regards to sanctification. Y'all are very familiar with this, but maybe not in this particular fashion. After we're saved, we're positionally in Christ, and this is eternal. We are in Christ based on what? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Permanent. Now, experientially, we're in fellowship in time. This is, can be called positional sanctification and Positional sanctification permanently set apart for God for blessing. Hear, hear? Depends on God. 1 Peter 1, 5. Who, talking about believers, are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That would be faith in truth. 1 John five twelve 12 13. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you what, may know that you have eternal life. I have drilled this into the kids because most of the people they come in contact with do not think that you can know for certain if you have eternal life. The Bible says you can based on believing. John 10:28. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. This is positional sanctification. The next thing we look at here is it is a fact. It is permanent. Now the bottom portion here, we're talking about in fellowship, in time, is experiential sanctification. This is what the Bible has more to say about than with the top circle. This, all the letters to believers are trying to help them understand, you better get cracking, the time is, is short. And you need to get to that point to where you can be set apart for blessing in time. Here's the difference here. Look at this. It depends on man and God. It doesn't depend just on man. We cannot achieve experiential sanctification on our own merit, on our own behalf. It has to be God plus, or man plus God in this case. The Holy Spirit enables us. But it depends on our work also, not just God's. First, First Thessalonians 4, 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Ephesians 4, and 23, In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. What's the old self? Old sin nature. Why are you able to do that? Well, we're able to do it because... What did Christ do on the cross? He broke the absolute control of the old sin nature so that now we can set it aside. Lay it aside, the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and that you will be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Romans twelve two, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. Only a potential. Fact. Potential. Progressive, permanent. You got that? It is progressive. Now here's the way we see it. Positional sanctification, this is the believer in time. This is for a person. This, This thing is showing you a misapplication, a confused person as to how this takes place. They think that positional sanctification, being in Christ, is temporary and it's only a potential. What did I just show you? Here's the potential down here. This is the fact. And they take the fact and make it a potential. They think that positional sanctification, being in Christ, is temporary and it's just a potential. And when they sin, they think they lose their salvation because they don't know anything about what spirituality is. They don't know about grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. They don't know about carnality and spirituality. They don't know how to get from carnality back into spirituality. And we're talking about most people buy into this lie. And they don't have... These are the ones that say, oh yeah, you can lose your salvation. If a person says that they can lose their salvation, they have bought into this and this is a lie. So... When a person says they can lose their salvation, they're no longer here, they're out here, they're outside of Christ, here's what you ask them. How many sins? What kind of sins? And show me in the Bible that would cause me to be out of Christ, lose my sanctification. Now once they're out of Christ, how do you get back in here where salvation is recovered? Good works. Well, if it takes good works, how many good works does it take? And what kind of good works does it take? And when you get back over here how long can you stay before you sin again and you're back out here again? How many, good, how many sins does it take? And what kind of sins? Can you see what a mess and a train wreck that this is? This, this is the lie. Here's the truth. Positional sanctification, being in in Christ, is eternal. This is the fact. The potential is experiential uh, sanctification. Being temporary, it has to do with being in fellowship. Now, when you sin, see, you're in fellowship, but when you sin, this is what happens. You go out. this This whole green area here is talking about fellowship in time. It's temporary. When you sin, you go outside here. You're no longer in this fellowship here, but you're still, what, in Christ. See, you don't go outside of Christ. You're still in Christ. And when you rebound, when you acknowledge your sins, boom, you're back into fellowship here. You're never lost being in Christ. Have you ever talked to anyone before? It's exasperating to talk to people who don't have eternal security, and they think, that when they sin or they do something that even surprises them, how could I do this? Well, I must not really be saved. I'm outside of Christ. Wouldn't you hate to live your life like that? We're, we're talking about a curse. The Bible says you're under curse if you believe this lie. Now, I've lost my flicker. Here it is. we're to lower that and go back to here. Okay. <clears throat> I have another one that I was going to show you, but I don't have time. And Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll just do it. I'll try to do it quickly. Here's another one on uh, sanctification. See, this is so important. You've got to get this down or you're going to stay confused. Positional sanctification is being permanently set apart for blessings in Christ. It is irrevocable assets that God gives you. The calling and gifts of God are irrevocable. That's a verse. And I'm sorry I can't give you a chapter and verse, but I can next time. See, this is what you do when you can't remember the verse. Don't tell people, well, I just don't know. Say, I'll find out. I'll give it to you next time. Get another, another another shot at them. The mechanics of positional sanctification is what? Look at this. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. These two verses are important. Do you know them? Do you know why 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 is so important? Because it's talking about a spirit baptism that, happens to everyone. It's past tense that in the description means it happened that when they believed in Jesus Christ, most people don't have a clue what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. I was square dancing one time in a square in Belleville, and this one lady was started talking to Carrie and I, and she said, "Oh, you're a pastor. What church do you go to? I mean, what, what church do you pastor? Well, it's country Bible church. Oh really. Well, uh, <coughs> you know what she asked me the very next question? Do you all have a baptismal pit of all questions? I said, no. She said, what do you mean no? I said, I mean in, oh, no, we do not. She says, well, you don't believe in baptism? I said, I didn't say that. She says, well, do you baptize people? I said, no, that's the Holy Spirit's job. And by then she was already reeling. She hadn't, didn't have a clue what I was talking about. And she went on this long dissertation about how important it is to be water baptized. And I said, why? I said, what does water baptism accomplish? And she was kind of iffy, kind of on the fence whether it meant whether you were going to be eternally saved or not, but it certainly to her meant that you were a good Christian if you were water baptized, and if you weren't, you probably weren't even a Christian. And I didn't even go to 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen because I thought this is a lost cause. Maybe I should have. I don't know. This is about spirit baptism. Why is Ephesians 4, 5 so important? There's, what is it? One faith, one Lord, one baptism? Now, there's seven different types of baptism, but in context, it's talking about there is one baptism that overshadows everything else. It's the, you could say there is one main baptism, the baptism. Above all the other baptisms, there's one. Now, is that talking about being dunked in water or is that talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit that God accomplishes at the moment of salvation that permanently puts you in union with Christ? And I've put that to people before and I've explained it that way and they say, well, I think it means a water baptism. I said, so the water baptism, when somebody dunks you in water, that's more important than what God does, that salvation that's permanent that puts you in Christ. Is that what you're saying? And they would say, yes. What do you do with a person like that? Exactly. Walk away. You're talking to a post. Number three, positional sanctification guarantees no judgment for believers. Romans 8.1. We receive God's eternal life and righteousness twice. A double portion. How about that? By imputation, eternal life according to John 3.36. And also by... Imputed righteousness, Romans four five. That is the type that has to do with uh, imputation. Then we're identif- identified with Christ, that is being in Christ, eternal life, Romans six twenty three. By the way, you all should know Romans six twenty three. You should all know Romans three twenty three and Romans six twenty three. Romans three twenty three is the bad news, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have, and the good news doesn't start out good in Romans six twenty three. Romans six twenty three for the wages of sin is death. We're still in bad news. What's the next word? But oh, thank the Lord for our but. <laughs> but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Romans 5:21, uh, imputed righteousness. P.S. makes us a new creature in Christ. Second Corinthians 5:17. P.S. means positional sanctification. Belongs to all believers, those who are spiritual, carnal, mature, immature, or even reversionistic. Positional sanctification comes only through faith in Christ Experiential sanctification comes through the filling of the Holy Spirit, spiritual growth, and works, which is divine good. Now, we've got to have this down pat. We can't even equivocate when it comes to what these things are and because it has to do with your purpose, why we're left here, why are we left on earth. Are we left on earth to be positionally sanctified? Absolutely, that's done. And that's what everybody is thinking. The whole Bible is nothing about are we going to get to heaven or are we going to get to hell. Most of the Bible, especially the New Testament, is is focusing on that time period in between. Our experience on earth that we call time, that's what the Bible focuses on. Everybody's missing it because they're trying to make everything eternal, eternal damnation or eternal life in heaven. Well, I probably went through that too fast. But you got it. And we're going to continue next time with Second Corinthians two fourteen. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are rich verses. If you go if someone asks, Did you go to Bible class? Yes. How long did it last? An hour. How many chapters did he cover? I knew you were going to do that. You giggle. One verse. And listen, you know, I'm kind of an in-between pastor, whether you know it or not. There are some that do cover chapters each time they teach. And there are some that will spend a month on one verse. So I'm somewhere in between there. Where, I don't know, but. The Lord leads, doesn't He? Let's close. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word, for Your faithfulness and Your truth. We pray that You'll give us the clear sight of what this life is about, the proper motivation and perspective so that we will set our priorities so that they will have everlasting impact. We thank You for Your grace. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.